You guys can be seated. Well, um, this morning, um, I'm excited to be before you. Um, over the last several weeks, seven weeks, actually, um, I've not been in this position uh, as the primary teacher and preacher here at Mission Church. And so uh, that's in order to allow one, two of those Sundays I was in Africa and then um, for five weeks um, was working on things for the church in pre preparation for our fall kind of kickoff and season. And that allows uh, Pastor Justin and some other men in our church uh, to uh, continue to develop their preaching skills and to listen and to uh, preach and to teach you. I believe that that is a healthy thing for me. I believe that it is a healthy thing for you not to hear from singular, a singular voice, but to hear from multiple voices. And I think and appreciate you guys' kindness and patience and, and grace. Um, today is a very exciting day for us in the life of Mission Church. Uh, one of my favorite things is taking place today. We're having one of our, our covenant membership meetings, and that's for those of us who have decided to, to join together uh, to keep each other accountable, to work out church discipline, to encourage one another, to sharpen each other. And so today is a, a big thing for us. We get to celebrate um, God's provision for us financially. We get to celebrate um, and welcome three new families in, into membership, into the life of the church. Uh, we get to affirm a new elder, Todd Crosby, um, into this elder team of Justin and I. And so we also get to cast vision for the fall. And so today is, is like, it's like a homecoming, except all the people who come to your church and haven't been there in 50 years don't show up. Have you ever been to a church homecoming? So you younger people are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, the older folk in the room know what a homecoming is. So this is kind of like a homecoming for us. And we get to have our, our close friends uh, with us here as well. And so today, if we call this like a vision casting Sunday, um, I, I'm going to be speaking to several groups. If you're a lost person here this morning, I want you to know, man, we're glad that you're here. All right? Uh, we are, you're welcome to be here. You're welcome to come here and to struggle. It is okay to be at Mission Church and to not be okay. But we have no desire to stay in that position. And so no matter where you are in your struggle and your relationship with Jesus, you are welcome to come here and you're welcome to struggle alongside of us um, as believers as well. If you're a pretender, I pray you get saved as well. Um, that you'd stop with the gimmicks and the religiosity and that Jesus would truly do heart work inside of you. If you're a faithful follower, man, I pray that you'd be encouraged in this place today to continue to walk in the newness that Jesus has made within you, that he would disciple you and grow you. But also specifically out of those believers, um, I'm going to use this opportunity to, to really dive into um, where we are kind of as a, a church in regards to some heart issues. And so I'm going to be speak, speaking directly to a lot of our covenant members. So if I call you out, you signed up to me to be able to do that when you signed the covenant. So um, by name, here we go. No, um, but in this journey, um, I'm going to use this teaching from this morning, and then when we have our meeting later, we'll come back to a lot of things that I'm talking about today. Um, but I didn't want to, you know, make you sit in a meeting this afternoon for like, you know, six hours. So you're getting it this morning, and then for those of us who are in covenant membership with each other, we're going to talk about some of this stuff again later on today. So I'm going to ask that you really listen to me. If you're any of those people I just mentioned, a lost person, a pretender, a follower of Jesus, a covenant member, I'm going to ask that you really pay attention to what is being said here today. All right. If your house is burning down, this is the question that we love to ask students. Um, we talk about this in elementary school. You probably talk about this in, in high school. We definitely talk about these sorts of things sometimes in uh, upper education. But if your house was to burn down right now, I want you to think of it, what would you grab? You could grab one thing, what would it be? Would it be the photo album? Okay, would it be some, some trinket? Um, for some of you, you would grab your kids and leave your husband behind. Um, whatever it is, you want to grab something um, of great value to you. Um, if your parents, let's say, were to pass away and they were to live you 
this house that they've been hoarding in for the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years, and you were to make the piles keep, give away, burn, what would be in the keep pile? See, what we hold to be of great value is a very subjective thing, isn't it? Something that you may believe to be very precious and very valuable to you and to your well-being and to your future. Man, you may grab that, and if someone else was to see that, they may think you're absolutely ridiculous, wouldn't they? Like for me, um, I, I've told my, my dad that everything that he's been keeping and hoarding for years is going in a yard sale one day. And I've told my sister, you can pretty much have anything that mom and dad have except for the guns in my house. Okay? Now, why are the guns precious to me? Because that's the only thing that has been passed down in our family from generation to generation to generation to generation. And I want to selfishly be able to pass those on to my nephews and to continue that legacy. So the goal isn't for me to hoard a bunch of guns. You can only shoot one or two at a time. But it's to be able to pass those on and to know this was my great-grandfather's. This was my great-great-great-grandfather's. Now, for some of you, the idea that I just mentioned gun in church, you're like, whoa, whoa now, brother. Can't be talking about guns or owning guns, all right? That would, it would seem ridiculous to you. I don't know about you, but every time I see a baby picture still of my children, even if it's a Polaroid, a small, actual, real photo instead of looking out on a screen, it it makes me swell with emotions looking at my kids. Why? Because they're of great value to us. But let's face it, we are a consumer-driven society. What we once hold at great value can quickly fade in its worth to us. Ask any parent who has children. I want this for Christmas, Daddy. I want this for Christmas, Mommy. And before you know it, it's given to the Goodwill Hope House. You know, and they're rummaging through those things because something new has come on that is bigger, brighter, and better. Or the token story of the dad who, who buys something for his little boy only to get it home for him to unwrap it and spend more time playing with the box instead of the actual toy. See, a value and worth in our culture, is something that is, is very much like a revolving door. When Todd Crosby and Brian Lewis and I were in um, Niger, uh, we were in this small little village. And um, there, so that we don't die from the water, um, they now had these like little water bladders, and you, you twist the end. And it's always funny to see a person who's never done this before figure out how to get into this bladder of water. But everybody has their own method of either twisting the corner or ripping it out. And um, Brian can tell you, so make sure I'm not lying here, but we, after we showed the Jesus film and we, we gave out this water and we gave out all this breakfast food to this, this village. And when I'm talking about village, I'm talking about adobe, mud house, grass hut sort of thing. Kids running naked everywhere sort of picture. So we're just taking all of this, and it was really hard for me. Because what do you do with trash in Africa? You throw it down. And I remember being like every part of my American, like, reuse, recycle, renew. I mean, it was like killing me to drink this water and just be like... So I came home with like pockets full of plastic. I mean, it was so tough for me, but we were in this village, hundreds, probably uh, close to 100 people, I'm guesstimating, um, were drinking all of this. So you can imagine all these little plastic pieces. And they're everywhere the next morning, am I not? I mean, it looks like just bombs have gone off with trash, and no one is doing anything about it except the kids. The kids would take all those they would blow them back up and make them into the balloons. Our trash was their treasure. It was of great value to them. And for the rest of the time that we were there, that's what they did, was they played with all of our trash. And we're having the best time. I mean, let's do that this afternoon. Hey, kids, let's go play in the trash. That's not going to last very long. And some parents who are like Perel freaks are like freaking out. I mean, whopping. I mean, me just saying that is causing you to twitch. 
Brothers and sisters, what's crazy about what is one day valuable to us and what is not valuable to us the next day is, is that many of us can treat our so-called relationship with Jesus in the same way. That at one moment, he can be of great value, great worth to us. But depending on the ebbs and flow of even a few moments, we can go from having great affection for God to it almost being completely vacant from us. We can talk about a day when, you know, that old-time religion, or you remember back when, when we used to really worship Jesus, or when we really had this encounter with God, or for maybe some of us who became Christians in college, that, that man, we just had this a greenhouse effect of growth, and love, and affection for Jesus, and yet we're clinging on to this past relationship with Jesus because something greater has come into the picture today. But love, unbridled, foolish, extravagant love, let's all face it, will cause us to do some ridiculous things. Ridiculous. A few weeks ago, Laura and I celebrated 16 years of marriage, 19 years of uh, being together. And I can honestly say to you today that I love my wife, Laura, more today than I did on July the 28th, 2001, when I stood before her in front of a bunch of people and said, I do. I love her way more today. But young people, single people, everybody needs to get this this morning. I am not telling you that I am more emotional toward her. But I do love her more I love her more today because true love is more about a decision. It is more about a covenant. It, it is more about not, it is more about it not being emotionally based driven affections, but a, a, an affection driven by devotion. So you can fall out of emotions really quick. Ask any 13, 14, 15, 16. 19-year-old girl, right? We're in love one minute, we're out of love the next. That's why I got out of youth ministry. It's because I got tired of hearing 15-year-old girls want to, you know, not eat for weeks because they broke up with their boyfriend who they've been dating for one day. It's ridiculous, right? We've lost that love and feeling. Whoa, 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 right? I mean, we... We get into this idea, and yet, really, unbridled, crazy, foolish, extravagant love causes us to do ridiculous things, and our emotions, can they be part of it? Yes, but they are not the driver. Devotion to that love must be the driver, because there will be days when you don't feel like it. You won't feel much of anything. So my question for you today is not what church you belong to, not how many books that you have read, not how many sermons you're going to listen to, um, not how long you've been a Christian, but I want everybody in this room evaluating this. Is your love for Jesus, is your passion for Jesus, is your devotion for Jesus, is it burning white hot this morning? Does Jesus hold the position of ultimate worth to you? How much is Jesus worth? In chapter 26, we turn that final curve toward the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If you remember over the last seven weeks that Pastor Justin and Brian have been preaching to us, we have, we have learned that they have primarily been speaking over the course of two months for us, or almost two months for us, but it was one day for Jesus one day of preaching in the Temple Mount, preaching to the Pharisees, preaching to the scribes, preaching to the religious people, and he's woeing them. Remember, he is saying, woe to you who clean the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is dirty and filled with, with maggots and disgusting things. Jesus then goes from preaching there and riling up the scribes and Pharisees even more 
to the, what we call kind of the, the Mount Olivet Discourse. Jesus is pulled away once again. He's heading toward Bethany, and he kind of pulls his band of brothers, his ragamuffin group of gentlemen next to him, and he begins to tell them about last things. He begins to tell them about the importance of him coming, and yet that he, he has something for them to do while they wait, that he wants them to eagerly wait, to not passively sit by, but there is a job to do. There is a, a mission to accomplish. As they look to the heavens, they work daily for the glory of our Lord and Jesus Christ. Work on his mission now in chapter 26, we, again, we see this plot thickens. The Bible tells us here, when Jesus finished all these things saying to the disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up and be crucified. I believe that this is the fourth time that Jesus has told this group of guys this. They, like me, are slow. They don't get it. They don't even get it here in this moment. So after telling them this, we see this in verse 3, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, that meaning the Passover, least an uproar among the people. So they're planning to take out Jesus, all right? They're going to snipe him out, all right? They're going to take him out of business, but they're going to wait probably another week to do this. This is, they're plotting for this to happen. They know that Jesus has many followers. He's been healing them. He's opened back up the temple mound for the nations to come, the Gentiles to come and to worship Jesus. He's cleared the flea mark out of the Gentile, uh, the Gentile area, the Gentile court. He's healing, he's teaching, he's, he's preaching to them about who he is. He's calling them to repentance. And yet all of the while he is doing this, the, those who are in, are in power believe that they are quickly losing what they have. Their heart, the heart of the religious elite has, has boiled over with hatred toward Jesus. I mean, let's face it, they're all people in this world that we don't like. But very few of us are plotting to kill them. Yeah, we may hope that their car breaks down, their house burns down. But very few of us, few of us, have a list of people we want to kill. All right? Not these guys. These men have a plot. They have a plot to kill this blasphemer named Jesus. They understood that they, to regain their power amongst the people, Jesus must be killed. To, to understand that their power connected to the Romans, which ultimately filled their own pockets with money, then that meant that Jesus must be killed. They gathered to arrest and to kill Jesus. Now, look at this. We go from this kind of view, this understanding of what's happening, to verse 6. And Matthew does something really strange here. Matthew, who is doing this kind of chronological play-by-play, -play, does something very different in his writing. Matthew is going to leave this detailed story to actually do a flashback in time. Mark and John's gospel also tells us this story about Jesus being anointing, but John's gospel in John chapter 12 tells us that it actually took place six days before the Passover. John tells us that, that, that Jesus had this moment before he ever rode into Jerusalem. But Matthew places this event right here. Again, not because they contradict each other, but because of him being a, the good writer, and hopefully this will make sense of why he is going to do this for thematic purposes, to, to get his reader to compare and to contrast something that Mary is going to do with something that Judas is going to do. We see this in movies all the time, okay? It's, it's a very creative way to communicate a cause, and that's what Jesus does. Matthew 
is wanting his readers to ask the same question that I asked earlier. Is your love for Jesus, is your passion for Jesus, is your devotion for Jesus burning white hot? Does Jesus hold the position of ultimate worth for you, brothers and sisters, friends, lost people, pretenders, followers of Jesus? Please get this. If you're not burning for Jesus today, that we must begin to evaluate that and become really real in our evaluation. We know that to this lady named Mary, that Jesus held ultimate worth. Let's see what happens in this flashback, verse 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, this is kind of, Bethany was kind of like Jesus' command center. It's where Lazarus, his best friend, he's just raised Lazarus from the dead right before this story took place. And so the Bible tells us in this flashback, now when Jesus was in Bethany, he was in the house of Simon the leper. Now, let's read into this because what are you doing eating at a leper's house? Okay, this is, this is strange. You didn't do this. Lepers were the outcasts, right? So it's, it's believed by most scholars since this party that we're about to peer into is happening at the leper's house, just like there are lots of people named Eric or Brian or Rick or Bobby. Um, to, in order to classify which Simon this was, they refer back to him, you know, Simon the leper. Not that he's still a leper, but that Jesus at some point has probably healed him. There's even some scholars and beliefs that, that this Simon the leper may have even been Lazarus's and Mary and Martha, because they're all brother and sister, maybe even have been his or their, their dad. But we're at the home of Simon the leper, and a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask and with very expensive ointment. Now, if you were to look at Mark chapter 14, which is the parallel of this, or John chapter 12, which is the parallel of this, we learn in John's gospel that he gives the name of this woman. Matthew leaves it out, I think, to allow us to kind of picture ourselves inside of this picture. But John is like, it's Mary, bro. I don't know if he would have said bro. But it's Mary, okay? It's Mary. This is Mary and Martha, right? If you're a lady and you've ever been in a Beth Moore Bible study by somebody from Lifeway, you have probably had some story or some book given to you about Mary and Martha. Which one are you? Okay. These are the sisters of the guy named Lazarus, who's probably the best friend of Jesus. All right. And the Bible tells us in the Gospel of John that this, this lady who comes and does this at the party is a lady named Mary. And this is, again, Mary the brother of, uh, excuse me, the sister of Lazarus and the sister of Martha. Now, we begin to see some very pointed things inside of this idea of Mary holding Jesus at ultimate worth. So I've got four points that I'm going to share with you here that we can see about Mary and her act of worship. Mary was prepared for worship. Mary was prepared for worship. Well, how, how, two things here. What is preparedness, but what is worship? Worship is, is this. From its original form, it literally means worship. What do you put your worth into? Again, what do you high, what do you put at, at greatest esteem, greatest value? What, what do you, you sacrifice for this thing or this person? This, this idea of worship that you are going to surrender for this thing, that you hold it at ultimate worth. We see that Mary is prepared for worship. What is she doing? She's present. Mary is constantly around Jesus. She is involved. She is not forsaking the gathering of the assembly. She is not forsaking the community of faith, but she is right there in the midst of these things. And yes, there's some cultural things. You can, like imagine that this is a low-lying table. All of the men are surrounded. They're resting on their left elbow as they eat with their right. Their feet are kicked out toward the outer walls. And it is a good time. This is a party that we're peering into. Again, if, if your brother is dead, brothers and sisters, like, 
really dead, stinketh dead, been dead for four days, and all of a sudden is eating and drinking juicy juice for some of you, fine wine for others of you, is at this table, and he's eating and drinking. And he, I mean, could you imagine what kind of questions would you want to be asking Lazarus? Did you see the light? Like, what's the pearly gates like? Is there bacon in heaven? I mean, whatever it is that you're, you're wanting to know from this guy, your brother who was dead but is now alive, imagine the celebration of the resurrection of Lazarus as they sit here. Again, this is a flashback. All of this trauma hasn't taken place yet. Jesus is about to ride in. Hosanna, right? And they're celebrating the person and work of Jesus could you imagine the, the, I don't know, the music that would be being played, the laughter that would be taking place as they celebrated what Jesus did inside of Lazarus? Mary was there. This is important. Notice, how else is she prepared? She went and got, she has within her possession an alabaster flask a very expensive ointment. She is prepared to do what she is about to do. She has had a mind toward this activity. She has spent some moments gathering it. And I don't know, again, I don't know if this is her daddy's house or if it's neighbor's house. I don't know, but, but Mary is also from Bethany, so I don't, we don't get to see in, maybe we can ask her one day, we didn't get to see in if she had to run home and she just was overwhelmed in her affections for Jesus that she had to go to her house and maybe she was going through everything to find this precious alabaster box. She was prepared to worship Jesus. She was prepared to hold Jesus at ultimate worth. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says this, Let us with the confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mary is prepared and she comes to Jesus who's reclining with his friends. And she comes to him what? She comes to him drawing near to him because she knows that he is at the throne of grace, that she is confident in the person and work of Jesus. The second thing that we learned from Mary is that Mary understood that there is a posture for worship. That there's a posture for worship. Verse 7, a woman came to him with an alabaster box and a very alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Mary understood this. She understood that there is a posture of worship. Mary understood that in the posture of worship, throughout her encounters with Jesus, where do we often see this Mary? We see this Mary at the feet of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, verse 39, Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha. Again, Martha is working. She's doing the dishes. She's preparing Jesus some, some matzah bread. And she is working around the house and gets quite frustrated at Mary because little Mary is doing what? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She is in the position of submission. She is in a position that allows her to listen to the teachings of Jesus. She knew who he was, and so in reflection to that, she knew who she was. Again, in John chapter 11, verse 32, when Lazarus, her brother, dies, because Jesus didn't come soon enough, Lazarus dies, and when Jesus does not arrive, what is Mary doing? She is hurt. She is upset. She, she's suffering. She is, she is grieving. She is possibly even angry at Jesus. Jesus, if you would have come, my brother would not have died. But notice, we see her not in the place of authority in that passage the Bible tells us that when she is doing this, she falls at the feet of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that Jesus can handle your hurtness. 
He can handle how upset you are. He can handle how much suffering. He can handle your grief. He can possibly, I know it's not possibly, he can handle your anger. But it's at the importance of the realization that we need to remain though, even in those things, those things are real. But to remain at the feet of Jesus when we engage him, she's not in the place of authority, but she remains in a place of submission at Jesus' feet. Here in Matthew and in the parallel accounts, where is Mary again? She's at the feet of Jesus. This is the posture of worship. Literally, in its original language, it means to kiss toward or to bow down before, that there is something greater, there is something of much more sovereign control and authority, and so I'm in a place of complete surrendering to whatever that is. This is what it means to worship, and we see even in, God, in John's gospel, this story, in John chapter 12, that it says that when she begins to break the alabaster box, that she begins to, to, to cover his feet as well with it, and to wipe and dry them with her hair. Mary understood that there is a posture in worshiping Jesus. It is to be at his feet. We learn shortly in just a matter of a few hours that Jesus is going to die upon a cross, is he not? It's very possible that Mary is one of those women that is listed there. And where is she again? At the feet of Jesus. The book of Revelation tells us that all of us as believers will be given crowns and all of this, or what we would consider earthly wealth. And yet at the sight of God, what will we do with those crowns? We will lay them at the feet of Jesus. And Mary, our sister in Christ, will be counted among that number who will one again, once again lay what we deem to be of great value at the feet of Jesus. This is a beautiful love story. It's not a sinful, sensual love story. It is one of ultimate devotion as we see that Mary was prepared for worship, as we see that Mary had a posture for worship. Thirdly, that Mary was willing to pay the price to worship Jesus. There was a cost. Matthew tells us that the alabaster flask was very expensive ointment. Mark 14 tells us that it was pure nard and very costly. John chapter 12 tells us that the oil cost 300 denarii, which was equal to a year's wages. It was believed that the stone that the alabaster box was made out of was probably from India, that these were imported things. Imagine, brothers and sisters... That if the average income for a person, I, I don't really know, is, is, is probably between thirty dollars and $40,000. Have you spent that on perfume in this last year? You've got a lot of brute at your house. <laughs> if you have. All right? And that's for everybody from the 70s and 80s right there. I'm sorry. What is the cool? I don't even know coolness anymore. I used to be cool. Now I'm not, all right? Old Spice, all right? That's a lot of bed, bath, and beyond, ladies. I mean, imagine spending thirty dollars to $40,000 for about 12 ounces of liquid. And we're talking about a peasant girl, a, 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 a girl who has been, been given this amount. And, and what does she do? She is willing to count the cost. She is willing to give up something that was probably the most valuable thing in her home. It was this. Perfume. We'll talk about the significance of that in just a moment. But you need to understand, again, this was, in, in, in the view of the earthly mentality, this 12 ounces, this, this liquid inside of this container would have been most valuable to her. And what does she do? She breaks it over the true and better altar. She breaks it over Jesus. 
Mary was willing to pay the price to worship. She understood that there was a financial cost to this. She also understood that there was a a persecution to this. Listen to what happens in verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why the waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Mary understood that there was going to be great persecution, possibly social persecution, in this very moment. And that word indignant inside of the Greek language is a really interesting word. Do a Greek study on it sometime. Uh, It is the picture of a bunch of wild horses standing around growling. It's it's the picture of them getting ready, blowing... They're, they're angry. They're upset. As many of you know, I, I, I love to deer hunt. I'd, I'd rather deer hunt than eat. Okay? And I've had this happen on numerous occasions, but when I go to the forest, which is not my natural home, I know some of you think that may, may be so, but when I go to the forest, guess what? That's their home. And if a deer smells you, you know what she does? You know what he does? He, he or she stops because they can smell you. Even if you're way up in the tree and they begin to stomp the ground and they begin to blow. And Todd's been with me. The boys have been with me. You can hear this across a, a mile's worth of field if they catch wind of you. Who is snarling and blowing? It's the disciples. John's gospel will tell us it appears as though Judas was the leader of this. But imagine, again, these are the followers of Jesus. These are not the religious elite. These are are not the men inside of the temple. And they're looking at this woman. You can imagine just like the party's going, it's getting, uh, all right. And then as Mary walks in, breaks this oil all over Jesus, everyone knows what is happening here, and they begin to snarl and growl and blow at this woman, this piece of property who has just done this wasteful. Why so wasteful? Let's face it, this act of worship is really strange. Hey, Frozen Chosen, is there a place in your worship for it to become strange? We can't get so heady that we lose its strangeness. So we see in this side of this picture, this is extremely awkward. This is an awkward moment. I don't know the last time you've been to Longhorn and some woman come in and take down her Victoria's Secret hair and get down at your feet and begin to douse you in oil. But that's weird. All right? Could you imagine Lazarus and Martha? Oh, sis done gone crazy. <laughs> My sister done gone, y'all, she's, she's crazy, <laughs> right? And that's what's, that's what's happening inside of the, here. Again, a woman was to keep her hair covered. It was, she was only to let down her hair in an intimate moment with her husband. And yet Mary comes in and she understands who Jesus really is. And she lets down her hair and she is coating Jesus' hair, his body, his feet with this expensive, expensive oil. And she is receiving persecution, not from just those outside of the community, but from those from within. We've got to leave some moments for some strange worship. And I'm not talking about unbiblical forms of strange worship. I'm not talking about your feelings turning to gold. All right? And that's, a, that's weird, strange, unbiblical. It makes no sense. And there are lots of people who believe that. Google it. That God will turn your feelings to go. So you can rot out your teeth and God will bless you for it. I'd be cutting them suckers out. I'd be like, oh. We going to Ryan's tonight. We got to eat. All right. I mean, I I mean, I'm not talking about unbiblical forms, but there needs to be a place in every one of our lives, whether that's in the community or even more important in your own prayer closet, where if someone was to peer into it, they would think it's strange. 
Because I don't know about you, but there have been moments where I've been laying gut-wrenched in agony and suffering, laying on the ground. And if you were to walk in and saw your pastor, you would have probably thought I was strange like Mary as well. There's got to be a moment for that. They ask the question, why this waste? And yet look at what our Jesus does. Look at what Jesus does, brothers and sisters. Read it. It says, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble this woman? Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. They're asking, man, this is wasteful. And yet Jesus comes to her defense and he says, guess what? Though this is beautiful. Man, we need to remember this. We need to remember that Jesus will come to our defense. Because Jesus knows the motive of your hearts, brothers and sisters. He knows if you raise your hands in worship, as the Bible says that we should. It always kills me. You'll never see my hand in worship. You're being disobedient. I'll never clap. That's in there too, says clap. I won't sing. Mm. Yet it says to sing. It says to celebrate. It says to shout. When we were in, in preaching in Africa, we were up there. I mean, it was like National Geographic in worship. I, ain't, I am not joking, all right? And it, went, it took me back to my former Pentecostal days growing up because we're sitting there. I mean, we're, they're singing some song about Jesus, and all of a sudden a woman in the back just yells and rolls her tongue like as loud as she possibly can. I'm like, oh, son, what is happening in here? She's shouting. She's, she's worshiping, and yet, again, can we do that for show? Yes. And yet, if it is real, Jesus, if your heart's motive is real in that, Jesus will one day come to our defense. Brothers and sisters, this is what we call undignified worship. It mirrors a story found in the Old Testament, right? When the Ark of the Covenant is being brought back to David's kingdom. And, and it says that David and all of his mighty men, so dude, these are like, you know, Spartans, the gladiators, these are ripped dudes. David's men were bad ninjas from the Middle East. I mean, they're crazy warriors. And they're, they've gotten the Ark of the Covenant back, and they're bringing it back towards David's kingdom. And do you remember what the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel? It says that they began to worship God with all of their might. All of their might. Everything, it, it, it's this picture of everything within you is exalting the person and work of Jesus. It's not just a, a mental transfer of knowledge. It's not just something that happens really super emotional, but it's an, an entire body happening experience toward God. Even so much, and do not try this. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. David strips down to his whitey tidies. Strips down to his underwear, the Bible says. And he begins to dance. Yes, Baptist. Dance. Not for anyone but the Lord. He was so into shouting for the glory of God that he strip off everything that he was. He's the king. He's this, you know, all of his dignity is left and laid bare before an audience of one in this undignified worship of God. So he can't wait to get home. And the Bible tells us there in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's, I mean, go home and read this. The Bible is awesome. He goes home and guess what? He's so excited to see his wife. He's like, we got the Ark of the Covenant. And she's like, Mm-hmm. Bible says she can't stand David. She was like, you weren't doing that for the Lord. You, you were doing that so all the maidens were, would lust after you. You were doing that so all the young ma maidens would think that you're hot. This, this king strips down. Does anybody remember what David tells his wife? Woman, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm going to be more contempt 
than what you're seeing even right now. I would become even more undignified than this very moment. And, and what do we see? A glimpse again of what? He tells her, he says, God chose me for this position. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself even more undignified. I will worship God even more because of this. So we see in Mary's understanding that, that there is a price to worship that is costly, that there would be earthly persecution for it. Another thing that she is risking in this is that this is her future. It's believed that this alabaster box full of this fluid that is, is, is worth you know, to us, this just exuberant amount of money and would have been to them as well, that is probably an heirloom, a, fairly, a, a family heirloom that she is now, because who knows, this could even partially have belonged to, to Martha or to Lazarus. And imagine your sister, your crazy sister Mary, coming in and taking all of the family's wealth and busting it over a dude from Nazareth. It's believed that it could have been part of her dowry that one day this young Mary would eventually get married to a man and, and as a family gift to that husband, I wish we still did this, um, she, she would give him a year's worth of wages. That would have helped year one, right? Could have been part of her dowry. It could have been a gift to her future husband. Or it could have been used in the case of a death in her or one of her family members, that it could have been for her body, as this was custom for them to do. And even Jesus is going to tell her, right? She's doing this for my burial. And of course, the slow disciples, I have no idea still what Jesus is saying. Paul would tell us in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and perfect and acceptable, or excuse me, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, Paul would also later get this, that this is uh, present our bodies, present what is most valuable to us, which I would believe is our bodies. Even if you have all the money in the world, if you get cancer and die, you can't spend it. So we got to take care of this body of ours that we deem them to be very, very valuable. And yet Jesus says, Paul says, Jesus says through Paul that we are to be living sacrifices and this is our spiritual act of worship. Mary was, get this, Mary was willing to risk her future for the present because she knew that her future was secure in Jesus. She was willing to risk her future for this present moment, for today. She knew the one of ultimate worth and value was not located inside an alabaster box. It was the one who was reclined at a table. Philippians 3.8 says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain or may gain Christ. So we often say, and I believe it was originally written by Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan pastor, that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. See, Mary got this. Paul got this. Think of the most valuable thing to you. And having this or having Jesus, whether that's money, a house, kids, fame, fortune, your health, hold all of that in one hand and then comparing that to either having Jesus and losing all this, our, our brothers and sisters who have gone before us are declaring to us even now in 2017 that we should be willing to sacrifice and to lose all these things for the gain of knowing Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. He is a work for us to do as a worship. We're to uphold him at great wealth and value that he is, he is so glorified in worship when we are more satisfied in the taste, touch, smell of the person and work of Jesus than we are anything that this world has to offer to us. 
Point number four, quickly, Mary understood the person to be worshiped. This is the most important point. Providing some oil for a guest was common. However, we, we learned some key insights into the type of oil that Mary is pouring over Jesus' body. This wasn't the generic stuff that you leave out for everyone. This isn't the paper plates that you're going to eat at when you come to my house because I don't want to do your dishes. This is the real stuff. This is, this is the good stuff. This isn't great value, Sam's choice. This is the good stuff. This is what you pull out when you really want to impress someone, when somebody is, is the guest of honor. In the Old Testament, we see those who God has set apart for special missions or positions were often anointed with oil. Prophets were anointed with oil. The priests were anointed with oil. A newly crowned king was often anointed with oil inside the Old Testament. So it's, it's very, very possible that, that Mary understood that Jesus was the true and better prophet, priest, and king. Or maybe she believed and knew, as Jesus had been saying that he was, is that he was the Messiah. She understood this. The Messiah is a Hebrew word, and what does it mean? The anointed one. Its Greek equivalent is Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title given to him that is reflective of that Old Testament word, Messiah, Christ. Every time you say Jesus Christ, you are saying Jesus, the anointed one. Is it possible that Mary understood this, that she got this, though the the closest people around him, the men who could be really in the big three, you know, Mary did not get to see the transfiguration, but Peter, uh, excuse me, Peter, James, and John did, right? Mary was not accounted a part of that, and yet she is getting some depths about who Jesus is that they did not. Jesus would have been covered in the aroma of the king. We got to understand that this stuff is potent. It's like a seventh grade gym class. And those boys find acts for the first time. It would have permeated the room. This man is doused in this nard, this pure, un, it, it is just concentrated form. It is covering this man. He is lathered in this. Jesus would have been covered in the aroma of the king. It's possible that everywhere that Jesus would have went in his final days, he would have had this smell. Maybe it would have been a reminder that in the midst of everything that was about to happen, maybe even this sermon or these things that are about to take place, that, that there would have been these occasional whiffs and smells of Mary's worship. Again, John chapter 12 tells us Mary anointed Jesus' feet and began to dry them with her hair. Jesus would have been covered. But so would have Mary have been. The only one in that room who smelt like Jesus was Mary. It was in her hair. Let's all face it. Hair either smells really amazing or disgusting. It does. It's nasty stuff. And yet everywhere where Mary goes, I mean, every, everybody knows that if we were to pump out certain smells in here, it would redirect you to memories that you have. Jesus, as he goes through this rough week, maybe in a, in a society where they do not bathe as often as we do, everywhere he went, the aroma of the king would have permeated those things. And the only one who got it and smelt just like him was a young girl named Mary. Paul got this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. Man, it's so good. 
Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? How do you smell? What kind of fragrance are you putting off? How much do you love Jesus? Is Jesus of ultimate worth to you? Is he of ultimate value to you? Why is this scene so important for us to mimic in our daily lives? Because it imitates Jesus. Without even knowing it or understanding it, all Mary illustrates is what Jesus will ultimately fulfill. Is it not Jesus who was prepared to worship God? The scribes and the chief priests and Judas all plotted against Jesus. But that was all ultimately a part of Jesus' greater plan. He was prepared. He had been preparing for thousands of years. It was always the plan for Jesus to come. And what they thought would happen a week from the Passover, guess when it happened? When God wanted it to happen. See, there was some plotting going on, but there was a greater plan that was prepared, and it was Jesus. Mary had a posture of worship. Does Jesus not have a posture of worship as he cries out in the garden, as we will see in a few weeks, not my will, but your will be done, as he is at the feet laying out in the garden of Gethsemane, or when they nail his hands to that board and those feet to that cross, is there not a posture of worship even in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus was like Mary and ultimately a true and better Mary that he was willing to pay the price. He was ridiculed for your and I's transgressions. He was beaten beyond recognition. He would ultimately pay the price with his very life to worship God and take on the full wrath of God. And ultimately Jesus understood who he was. He was God. It was his character. It was his nature. So I ask you this morning, how much do you love Jesus? Not simply on this morning. This is really easy to say that we love Jesus here. How much do you love Jesus? Let's flash forward in closing. Verse 14. So we went flash back. Now we flash forward to the scene again. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. See, Judas delivers Jesus over to the chief priest for thirty pieces of silver, which the Bible tells us in the book of Exodus chapter 21, that it's equivalent to the payment for a slave. Mary... Her value in Jesus was what? Her most prized possession. Judas' value on Jesus was that of a slave. And, and before we just beat up Jesus for, or Judas for beating him up, let's, let's understand that Jesus, Judas was sacrificial to a point. He gave up his time. He gave up his job to be with Jesus he gave up his talents. The Bible tells us that, that Judas is the, in, the treasurer for Jesus' ministry. But he was will, unwilling to give up his greatest treasure. He was a fan, but he was not a fanatic. See, brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm afraid that many of us have a longing for heaven, but not a love for Jesus Judas was more concerned about his agenda, his mission, his own wallet. Judas seeks gain. Mary realizes that she has been given everything. Therefore, she seeks to give generously. Do you see the difference? Remember, our worship of Jesus doesn't change his worth. He is infinitely worthy. He is of infinite value. But it does change us. If we could bring witnesses in this morning and you had to sit there and not speak, but if we could bring witnesses in here to give an account of your love for Jesus, what would their testimony be? 
Do you love Jesus? Is he of ultimate worth to you? Do you love his church? Are you willing to sacrifice a mere portion? Or are you willing to to give it all? Because you understand who Jesus is. If you're lost here today, we pray that Jesus would save you. If you're a pretender here today, we pray that Jesus would save you. If you're a follower of Jesus, and we pray that your affections for him would be stirred. A powerful, potent, aromatic, just, uh, just that there's a, an aroma that exudes from us. Let it be said of us, church. Let it be said of you. Let it be said of me. Let's pray.